Amen and happy Easter. I'll tell you, in the first service, I got so lost in that song, I forgot to come up. Matt's like, what are you doing? I didn't want it to stop. I'm not going to lie. It's amazing. I actually woke up to that song this morning. I, maybe I shouldn't tell you this, but I'm the kind of guy when I wake up in the morning, I don't think I'm grumpy, but I just don't want to talk to anybody for about 10 minutes, you know? And uh, my wife is the exact opposite. She's like a cute little bird in a tree, just flitting from branch to branch, you know? And so 23 years now, she, she gives me about 10 minutes. But this morning, she's up getting things ready for the kids, and she's singing that song. And I just thought, you know... Pretty cool. It is wonderful to get to sing that song. It is wonderful to get to sing it sincerely, to get to sing it authentically, to get to sing it as those who affirm its truth. You know, it's not Christ the Lord is risen today. Well, at least according to the myths that we've heard about him. Hallelujah. It's not it. It's not. Jesus is risen, and I hope you've sensed by his spirit that Jesus is here. So it is a privilege that we get, that's my key word, by the way, to worship him like this. It is a privilege that we get now to gather at his feet. We're going to join some first century Jewish people. We're going to sit at the feet of the master by his spirit, through his word. We're going to take in his teaching. It is a privilege that we get to do that. And then it's a privilege that we get to live it out. Because here's the other thing I want you to realize. Living for Jesus is a get-to. It's not a have-to. You have to take out the trash. You have to fold the laundry. You have to, at some point, to unload the dishwasher because, you know, I mean, the reality is the dirty dishes in the sink, the pain of that overwhelms the pain of unloading the dishwashers, and so you have to do it. There are things you have to do, and then there are things you get to do. You get to go get your nails done with your daughter. You get to throw the ball in the street with your son. You get to go on vacation with your family, go to the beach with your friends. You get to go on a date with somebody that you love. There are have-to-dos and there are get-to-dos. And here's the deal. Living for Jesus is not a have-to-do. Is that what it is for you? It's not. And if it is, then you need to know the gospel. Guys, Jesus has freed us from all the have-to-dos. He's done all the have-to-dos for us. And when that takes hold of your heart, when that transforms and penetrates into your mind and into your life, here's what happens when it comes to living for Jesus. All of a sudden, it's a get-to-do. What, I get to do that? Okay, let me think about it this way. You get the privilege of being able, by the power of God, that is a supernatural power in accordance with His Word and community with people who are on this eternally life-changing journey together with you, to live a life that in the end can only be explained by the reality of a risen Savior who has been at work in and through you. Now, line up any other ambition next to that one and see how it measures. So living for Jesus is a get-to-do. And what we've been doing this year is just studying his life, studying his teachings, studying that which we, by his grace and power, get to do. What a privilege. And we've been studying through the book of Luke in order to do that. And last week, we came to this beginning of a large section of the book of Luke in which Luke now drills down on what it means to live for Jesus. Now, what it means to follow Christ. And so he's coming to us and saying, all right, following Jesus looks like this, and it looks like this, and it looks like this, and it looks like this. And you're like, oh my goodness, already I'm overwhelmed with all the have-to-dos. No, no, no. The get-to-dos. And today, as we continue in this section of the book of Luke, 
Luke is going to come to us and he's going to say, all right, following Jesus means learning, it's a process, to become a good neighbor. And here's why that's the case. Because that's who Jesus is, but even more significantly and far more personally, that's what Jesus is to me and to you if you have faith in him. And look, when that gets in you, man, you want to be a good neighbor. You start looking for opportunities. So we pick up our study today, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, where Luke says this, and what an inauspicious way to begin a story. He says, and behold, a lawyer. Just saying. How to win friends and influence people. Luke didn't get that book, I guess. All right, here's the deal. It's not the kind of lawyer you're thinking of. It's a religious lawyer. It is an expert in the law of God. This is an expert in the Mosaic law. And this is a very profoundly religious man. Behold, a lawyer, Luke tells us, stood up. And so he takes a posture that in that culture was a posture of formality. He's going to make a statement, or really what he's going to do is he's going to ask a question, and Luke now tells us that it's not a sincere question. In other words, he's not actively looking for information. He thinks he knows the answer to the question. He wants to know if Jesus knows the answer to the question. He stands up to test Jesus. But even though it's insincere, it is a really important question. He stands up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I, and then here comes the key word, do to inherit eternal life? Hey, Jesus, here's my question. What do I have to do to go to heaven? What do I have to do? And Jesus, who knows everyone's heart, including his, just masterfully turns it around. And he says to him, well... What's written in the law? You're the expert in the law. How do you read it? And the lawyer answered and gave the classic summary that Jesus, I'm sure, was anticipating he would give, and everyone else too, of the entirety of the law. There are all of these laws. How do you sum them up? Love God, love people. Do that and you'll fulfill the command. So this guy gave a predictable answer. He answered and he said, you shall love the Lord your God. Now feel this, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and then as if that's not enough and you shall love your what? Your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus runs afoul of our evangelical sensibilities for a moment until we understand what it is that he's actually saying, because he kind of commends him. He says, good answer. He says to this man, you have answered correctly, and then Jesus uses the key word. He says, do. Now, here's why this is the key word, because it's a word that speaks of a constant, consistent, and unfailing action. Do this, he says, And you will live. Translation, if you really can love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and, as if that's not enough, love your neighbor as yourself, you ready for the standard? Perfectly for every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every week of every month of your entire life. Well, then you shall inherit eternal life. But if not, then you need to be rescued. Then you need a savior. You see what he's doing? He's laying before us the crushing weight of the standard of God, and he's letting us and that guy feel it, and that guy feels it. And we know that because 
He tries immediately to dumb it down. See, instead of running to the one who himself has only kept that standard in our place and for us, we'll get to that in a minute, for his salvation and forgiveness and complete relief from that crushing standard, he instead starts picking apart the standard. You know, hey, maybe if I can dumb it down a little bit, maybe if I can make it a little easier, maybe if I can make it a little lighter, maybe it won't crush me. So the lawyer says this, verse 29, it says, desiring to justify himself, that is to say, to find a way to somehow lighten the load so he can stand up underneath it, he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Because here's what he's thinking. If my neighbor looks like me and thinks like me and walks like me and talks like me, votes like me, agrees with me, lives lives like me, agrees with me on all of the various issues of life, well then, maybe I can love him like myself. So who's my neighbor? And in response, Jesus tells one of the most famous stories ever uttered by anyone anywhere. And it's a story that completely unmasks this guy and me, and sorry, but and you. And it reveals unequivocally our need for a Savior who is Christ alone. But it's also a story that Well, tells us that, hey, you're going to follow Jesus? You need to learn how to be a good neighbor because that's who Jesus is. And more importantly, perhaps even than that, that's what Jesus is for all who have faith in him. And so then in beginning in verse 30, Luke says this. He says, and Jesus replied to this, who is my neighbor question. And he begins a story and he says, a man, and the assumption here, and it's a right assumption, is that the man in this story is a Jewish man. So he starts with a guy that looks like and thinks like and lives like and walks like and talks like and agrees with this lawyer on pretty much every issue of life. A man very much like this religious lawyer. He says, a man like that, a Jewish man, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when Jesus says that he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he means that quite literally. He is referring to a road that everybody in his first century audience would have known because it was famous. And here's what they would have known. It's 17 miles long. It descends 3,500 feet in elevation, literally, from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it is notoriously dangerous. So many people were so regularly attacked and robbed and beaten and murdered on this road that it was referred to very commonly as the way of blood. So here's what else they knew. No one should ever travel the way of blood alone. I mean, that's just, forgive me, but stupid. That is foolishness. At best. And yet that's exactly what Jesus has this guy doing, which makes what happens next entirely predictable, does it not? Again, continuing verse 30, he says, And he, this not so smart and frankly foolish man, fell among robbers who did to him what robbers do. They stripped him, they beat him, and then they departed, leaving him helpless, naked, bleeding, and half dead, but not entirely dead, at least not yet. And then Jesus says, he says, by chance a priest was going down that road. And that too was kind of a normal thing. And those folks would have understood that. Twelve of the 24 orders of priests that served two times a year for a week each in the temple lived in Jericho. So constantly then, there are priests traveling this road. Commonplace. He says, by chance a priest was going down that road. And when that Jewish priest, what? Saw this helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish brother of his... He passed by on the other side. 
And then Jesus says, so likewise a Levite, another religious man, another person who served in the temple, that was his duty, was his job. When he came to the place, and again, he what? Saw this helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish brother of his. Well, he also passed by on the other side. And here's why I think that Jesus used religious people as examples in this story. He did that because the man he's talking to, this lawyer, is a religious person. And he wants that guy to identify with these people. But he did it also knowing that his entire audience that day and this day and every day between then and now would be filled with religious people. This is taught in church. This is a story told to the religious. And so then what's the expectation of religious people? Because I'm just going to state it and own it. The expectation is that we're going to be a merciful group. That indeed we ought to be the most merciful people on the whole of the planet. And here's why that's a reasonable expectation. Because we talk about stories like this. We teach our kids stories like this, like many of us grew up in church and went to Sunday school and like on flannel graph saw stories like this. We come to church and we hear sermons on stories like this. If you're the priest, if you're the Levite, if you're the lawyer, or if you're me, you get to preach those stories, those messages. We major on mercy with our mouths and the world therefore then expects us to major on mercy with our lives. And I want to pause for a minute and say throughout the history of 2,000 years of the Christian church, the Christian church has been the most selflessly merciful organization on earth. No question. But we're not always merciful. And we're not always equitable in how we distribute our mercy. We've begun, I think, to pick and choose a bit. And here's what we're certainly not. We are certainly not perfectly merciful. Every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every week of every month of every year of every one of our lives, which is the standard. And so here's what happens in my heart, at least, and maybe in yours. When you realize that and you begin to kind of identify with the priest and the Levite a little bit as opposed to cast aspersions at them, you begin to want to kind of concoct an excuse for them, hoping that if I can just excuse them, Tom, then maybe I can sort of excuse myself as well because I see the reflection a bit, like I get them. And so you begin to argue with the story, and you think to yourself, okay, now wait a minute, Tom, there's a priest and a Levite, yes, and they're religious people, yes, and they have duties in the temple, yes, and there's a ceremonial purity... That's assumed. I mean, they have to be ceremonially pure to serve in the temple way back then. Isn't that right? Yes. If they touched a dead person, for example, Tom, then they become impure, don't they? Yes, that would disqualify them at least until they could go through the process of regaining their purity from serving in the temple. Yes. Well, then I think what happened then is that they passed this guy because they were on the way to the temple and they thought he was dead. I mean, maybe he looked like he was dying, but maybe they just thought he was dead and they thought, well, you know, maybe somebody else can collect this guy or do something for him. Or Do you think that might be what happened? No. Jesus crushes that right out of the gate. He has the priest and the Levite both also coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. They're done with their duties in the temple. And then in addition to that, they're experts in the religious law like the lawyer, and they knew that the law required them to bury abandoned corpses. My goodness, if the man was dead and that's what they really thought, why didn't they bury him? They ignore this man for reasons unrelated to any of that. You say, all right, well, then maybe they just made a judgment call on this guy. 
I mean, Tom, you told us it's the way of blood. I mean, how dumb do you have to be to travel that thing alone? This guy is the emblem of foolishness, and perhaps they just thought, well, I guess this guy, you know, he's just he's one of those guys who's just never going to get it. He's just now, he's going to get what he has coming to him, and maybe we ought to allow it. Keep bailing him out of this thing, keep bailing him. He just, he's going to keep doing the same stupid stuff. That's kind of what he's like. That's who he is, and maybe it would even be good for us as a community to allow this one guy to perish so that all the rest of us could once again get the lesson that, hey man, don't travel the way of blood alone. It might actually save lives to lose one. All right. You ever thought like that? Am I the only person who's ever made a judgment call like that? Yeah, I don't think so. Here's what happens, and we all do it. We see somebody in desperate need, and we make all kinds of assumptions about how it is that they got there. And we do that because we're building a case in our own heart for ignoring them. Isn't that right? And we begin, based upon our assumptions, the case that we're making, to think to ourselves, man, I'm not going to validate this guy's laziness. I'm not going to enable this guy's stupidity. I'm not going to sign off on his sinfulness. I'm not going to honor his foolishness. It wouldn't be good for him. And it wouldn't be good for our community. I mean, you know, maybe it's good for our community to have a few emblems of this. If you go down this road, kids, this is where you end up. Now, be honest, okay? Is that really the reason? I think the reason is this, and it is this for me. I know this. Oftentimes, the reason is I look at that and I say, that is too big of a mess, and I am too busy. You ever have that thought? You ever say it out loud in front of 400 people? <laughs> More like a thousand by the end of today. Really. And here's the deal truth be known. I care about me and mine more than I do about him and his. I don't love my neighbor as myself. And here again, Jesus tells this story in such a way as to strip us of those kinds of excuses. And I say that because he has the priest and the Levite traveling down the way of blood all by themselves too. So he creates a story in which these guys are guilty of the very same stupidity, of the very same foolishness that landed their now helpless, naked, bleeding Jewish brother in the ditch. And I think what he's saying is, guys, we are all of us made of the same clay. We are all of us subject to the same weaknesses We are all of us if given just the right set of circumstances. And do you know what that person's circumstances are? Answer, no. Capable of ending up in exactly the same place, in exactly the same condition and ditch. And so then, should we not be a bit more humble and a whole lot more compassionate? Jesus says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw this helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish brother of his, even though he looked like him and walked like him and talked like him and thought like him and voted like him and agreed with him on, you know, I don't know, pretty much everything, what did he do? He thought only of himself. He thought of the peril that he was obviously in. I mean, these guys have left this man, the robbers have, for dead, and he's not yet dead. So how long ago did they leave? 
How close might they yet be? He thought only of himself. And he passed by on the other side, and so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw his helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish brother, even though, again, they were so much alike, walk, talk, thought, vote. Well, he thought only of himself as well. He either thought of the danger or he thought of his schedule. I'm too busy. He's too messy. I've got people to see. I have places to be. I have important work to put myself to. And I didn't put this in my schedule. This is not, this doesn't fit. And he too passed by on the other side. And then Jesus said something that utterly astonished this Jewish religious lawyer and all of the Jewish crowd that were gathered at his feet as he's telling this story. He said, but a Samaritan, an inveterate enemy of the Jews, one who has been victimized by Jews and one who has himself or at least his people have victimized Jews. But a Samaritan, the most unlikely of people, as he journeyed, but as he journeyed from where? From Jerusalem to Jericho. So he's just spent a little season of time in an utterly Jewish city. What do you think that season of time was like for him? You think that was a happy time? Think he enjoyed his stay in the city of Jerusalem amongst the Jews who hated him so desperately? Or was it a time of great indignity? Was it a time of great insult? Was it a time that he'd like to just forget as he travels home and awaits the moment that he could be back amongst his own people, amongst people who love and appreciate him. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed along that same journey, is the point, came to where this helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And notwithstanding the fact that he obviously was aware that the robbers might be around because the guy was still alive. So he's in great danger notwithstanding the fact that, okay, this was not a part of his schedule. He didn't write this in, you know, I'll just bank an extra day or so here just in case I run into a dying Jewish guy. No. And notwithstanding the fact that he knows that the man is Jewish and almost certainly would not have treated him kindly or the shoe on the other foot, I love what he does because it's very personal. He personally went to him. He didn't run off to form a committee to deal with him. He didn't call up, you know, the Jewish Federation in Jerusalem and say, hey, listen, I just happened upon one of your people and he's dying on the side of the road. Doesn't look like he has much time left. You guys might want to send somebody out here. He doesn't pass him by, let him die, and then go home to deal with the legislature and to say, you know, this street is known as the way of blood. This is an embarrassment in our community. Don't you think we need to have more security on this road, change its name to the way of safety or something like that? Listen, I would be all for that in this circumstance, but first he's going to deal with the dying man. He does it personally. He went to him, and he himself bound up this man's wounds, pouring on oil and wine. It's medicinal in those days. And then look what he does. He sets him on his own animal while he walks, and then he pulls out his phone, and he calls his wife. And he says, honey, I know, I know, I know that I promised you that I would be home tonight. I know that it's family night. I know that you've invited your parents, and I hate to miss that. But I'm not going to make it. You see, I've been walking down the road from Jerusalem. I'm on my way to Jericho. And and as I'm walking down the road, I see this helpless, naked, bleeding, dying 
Jewish guy on the side of the road. And I, yeah, I, yeah, I said he was Jewish. No, I, yeah, I know, no, I know, I know he, yes, I realize he wouldn't do this for me. No, okay, listen, shh, just give me a second, give me a second. Here's the bottom line. I, when I saw him, I couldn't pass him by. So I'll see you tomorrow. Click. Then he gets out his phone again and he calls his secretary and he says, Hey, listen, I know that we've got a big meeting tomorrow morning and I was all prepared to do that. I know that you moved heaven and earth to get nine people scheduled so we can all get in the same room. I realize we've got a big deal and it's all about that and I'm supposed to be at the meeting and I've promised you that I would be, but I, I'm not, I'm not going to make the meeting and, uh, and I'm sorry. I, what, what happened is that as I'm coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho, I, I saw this helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish guy in a ditch and yeah, my wife's already told me that, yeah. No, she mentioned that he wouldn't have done... Yeah, no, I, I understand that we're... Okay, now just hang on a second. All right, here's the deal. Just, just give me, please, hear me out. I, I, when I saw him, I couldn't pass him by. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. You ready for a sleepless night? Because he takes care of him all night long personally. And then the next day, before he obligates himself financially any further to this man, he collects his name and his address and his social security number. He runs a credit check on him. He has him sign a promissory note. (laughs) Safeguards. The next day, he took out two denarii, enough for room and board for two weeks, and gave them to the innkeeper. And innkeepers in those days were notoriously dishonest, saying to the innkeeper, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. It's like he gave him his American Express and just said, just put all the charges on that. Blindly obligating himself for the care of this man. It's astounding. You say, well, what happens next? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? That's a terrible answer. I mean, does the guy live? Does he die? Like, what happens? No clue. Well, but what about the Samaritan? I mean, does the innkeeper rip him off? I mean, I don't know. Okay, look, surely the Jewish man thanks the Samaritan at some point. Like, they become friends, and they buy a vacation home together. You know, they become, they become the emblem of racial reconciliation between the Jews and the Samaritans. I mean, come on, Tom, you got to do better than that. I can't. It's the end of the story. That's it. It ends right there, unless it begins to live in you. Then it just keeps going and going and going. And look, it's obvious that that's exactly what it's designed to do. Because Jesus then looks at this expert in the law, he's finished his story, and he says, which of these three? And he has named them priest, Levite, Samaritan. Very particularly. Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, Jesus is saying, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? To which the lawyer says, hey, whoa, hang on a second, because I'm a lawyer, and I know that you haven't answered my question. So, Madam Court Reporter, please read the question back. The question is, who is my neighbor? Okay, he doesn't do that, and here's why. Jesus has already answered that question. He knows that. I know that. You know that. Who is your neighbor? Who is my neighbor? My neighbor is not every hurting person on every street or road in this world. My neighbor is every hurting person on my road. 
And yours is every hurting person on yours. Jesus looks at this man and he says, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And look at his answer. Because he cannot even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He so despises those people. He merely speaks of what he's done. He says, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him and to me and to you, go and do likewise. Following Jesus means learning how to be a good neighbor. And here's why. Because that's who Jesus is. And more personally and significantly to me at least than that, that's what Jesus is. It's what he is to me. It's what he is or offers to be to you guys. What is the gospel? The gospel begins with this realization. Newsflash. None of us have ever loved the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength and all of our mind, much less our neighbor as ourself, and certainly not perfectly. For every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every week of every month of every year of our lives, conception to death, it flattens us. See, here's where that leaves us, spiritually speaking, helpless, naked, bleeding, and not almost dead completely dead, crushed under the weight of that standard that we cannot bear up under, but that flattens us like a piece of paper, and crushed under the undeniable evidence that every one of our lives shows forth, sorry, but of our own, at least at times, stupidity, laziness, foolishness, sinfulness. It's who we are. We're all made of the same clay. And yet, even though we had rejected him, even though we had lived as his enemy at times, when Jesus looked down upon us and saw us there in that state, in that ditch, well, he couldn't pass us by. So, through a supernatural conception, that's Christmas, God the Son clothed Himself in our humanity and entered into this world as one of us. God made man. That is to say, He put Himself on your road, and He came to your road knowing how it would end for Him. That He would, in fact, be seized and beaten and shredded and stripped and crucified. Not left half dead, but killed and completely. And nevertheless, he entered into this world to heroically do what none of us are capable of doing and none of us have, in fact, therefore then done, which is what? To fulfill the law of God, to bear up under his standard, to live the perfect life that God requires us in his holiness and righteousness to live. He lived it for us and then he offered his perfect life as a sacrifice on that cross and as the full payment for every one of us our sins. And then the author of life was laid in a grave, and on the morning of the third day, happy Easter, the author of life came forth from the grave, because death cannot hold the author of life. It's not surprising that he was raised. What would have been surprising is if he wasn't. And he offers forgiveness, and he offers eternal life freely. You don't have to serve him, but guess what you get to do? You get to, and when 
He really has hold of your heart. That's the way you see it. It's what you want to do. And living for Him, well, among other things, means learning how to be a good neighbor. By His power, in accordance with His Word, in community with people, it means learning how to live a life that honestly just can't be explained apart from the reality of a risen Jesus at work in you and at work through you, just like He did or was as illustrated by the Good Samaritan. There's no explanation for that apart from the hand of God in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our incredibly brilliant Lord, the one who sees through all of our excuses, the one who knows our hearts in their entirety, the one who knows that we are crushed, the one who could not pass us by, Lord, we praise you for Jesus who in love came to our road knowing it would cost him everything and who in love then gave everything that we who had nothing might find everything in him. Lord, let us run to him from the crushing weight of God's standard. Let us run to him from the undeniable reality of, well, a lot of issues that we own that belong to us. Let us find our forgiveness in Him. Let us find our cleansing in Him. Let us find relief from having to buy our own salvation, or at least trying, through our efforts, and rather find it wholly and completely in His efforts. And then, let us wake up to what life is all about. Let us wake up to the fact that we have the privilege with this tiny little life that we have of living for Jesus. Let us know the power of His Spirit at work in our lives. Let us humble ourselves before His Word. Let us in community together go on a mission that continues and has implications for all of eternity. Let us spend our lives that way, Lord, and let us know the joy and the satisfaction and the fulfillment and the great company of doing that. We pray these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.